You're listening to the Mining and Energy Union podcast. Yes, you're listening to the Mining and Energy Union podcast. My name's Tim Brunero. Usually we're in the studio, but we're out in the field today and it's absolutely gorgeous where we are. I'm here with Colin Gray, one of our members at the Carmichael Mine. Colin, this is paradise. Where are we? Oh, we're at sunny, far north Queensland uh, at a place called locals know as Cornwall Park, which is about 38 k's southeast of Cairns. We're sitting right on the water and we're looking out over the water to Cairns, which is sort of on the other side of the bay. Would you call it a bay? Yep, yep. So we can see from, from where we are, we can we can see the uh, the Esplanade uh, where nighttime we can watch the planes take off from the airport. Like when they have fireworks, we can see all the fireworks. And uh, We've seen cruise ships uh, sitting in the harbour. We've seen a gigantic Ferris wheel all lit up with rainbow colours. But from where we are over here, we, we're surrounded by palm trees. Um, there's a big sign about two feet from where I'm sitting that says, don't go near the water because there's crocodiles. <laughs> so we won't be going for a swim. Uh, and we're here to talk to you about the voice. But first I want to just go through your work life because at the moment you're at Carmichael, probably better known as the Adani Mine, and you're a, a diesel fitter there. How long have you been there? How's it going there? Uh, I've been there two years. Yeah, it's, it's going all right. It's, it's going good. You know, the work's good. The pay's good. Been a lot of teething issues. You know, new Greenfields Mine, uh, so it's just getting established. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's been going good so far. I heard there's been some issues with the planes. I know you're actually a uh, qualified uh, aircraft mechanic. You haven't been <clears throat> tempted to get out in the tarmac and, and help them with their, with their um, charter flights out to the out to the mine. <laughs> I've I've um I've had a few conversations with some of the guys uh, when we're getting ready to to take off. You know, trying to get me seconded to to go and repair some of the planes. Um, but no, no, unfortunately, or fortunately for the other guys, I haven't been asked to work on them yet. And, and what are you doing out there? So you're doing that sort of classic. Um, diesel, like heavy maintenance rock. Yeah, yeah. So uh, predominantly um, anything ranging from uh, PM servicing to to component rebuilds and uh, uh, midlifes, um, engine changeouts, failures, like any change out big components that, that fail and uh, sort of stuff like that. And what kind of plant have they got up there? <coughs> Trucks, dozers? Yeah, yeah. We um, we've we've split it up now. I'm uh, I'm on tyres, so I work on predominantly on uh, on trucks, but we've got your classic mining uh, mining stuff, uh, dozers, loaders, graders, diggers, uh, lighting plants, which is you know everyone's favourite, everyone's favourite to, to pass on to the next person. <laughs> Tell us a bit about your job and how it's evolved. You know what you're actually doing because I know the team's a lot bigger now than than it was originally. Yeah, that's right. When I started there two years ago, we had I think it was like four or five uh, fitters per crew. Uh, and now we've grown to a team of around 30 fitters. Uh, it's been a bit of a rough, rough trot trying to work with with the with the company, with uh, you know, with the with the mother company, the parent company as well. But um, having the union on side has, has made such a difference. Uh, the collective fight, you know, that and having the support of the union, having the support of what the union brings as well. You know, the the legal team, the you know, being able to pull from uh, from such a vast uh, wealth of, of, of knowledge and experience with dealing with uh, larger organisations that, you know, in realistically are working for for themselves. You know, they we we are we are helping them to 
as people on the ground, we're we're doing the groundwork, but you know, we're the, as every company, they they look they're looking after their own interests, and that's exactly what the union is helping all us do on the floor, on the ground level, is is help to work for for our our interests and what's what's best for us. I know at Carmichael there was a few issues, and you might tell us a bit about um, what's happened because I think you've had a few little wins. Uh, first, there was there was an issue with pay, but also there was an issue with flights with. Uh, flights being cancelled and people sitting around at airports for hours or half a day or even overnight, but the only problem is they're not getting paid. So they're getting they're effectively paying for the flight delays. Um, there's been a bit of a improvement when it comes to the pay rates and to and to the flights situation with you guys organising with the MEU and, and 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 getting some stuff done. Yeah, definitely. The pay rates was a was a was a huge issue when when I first started. Uh, we were we were on a pretty um, not the best pay rate, uh, but now since uh, with the help of the union, uh, as as well as you know, I was I was one of the uh, one of the negotiators, uh, one of the delegates helping with the negotiations of the EA. Now we've we've got a, a really good win, uh, getting that across the line with the with the pay rates and the and the pay structures. But yeah, the other the other issue is uh, delayed flights currently. There's been a few issues with the flights in regards to maintenance uh, and and landings in in low cloud. Aircon's not working, uh, but currently there's uh, the unions in, in in talks with Macalla, um, Bravas, and and the uh, carriers to to get this issue sorted. We've, we've had a few wins with it, but you know it's it's the future's looking better. I think you were telling me off mic that when you got to the workshop. People were all on different pay rates, and there was no real rhyme or reason for that. There was no logic. Some people would be on forty-one bucks an hour. Some people would be on forty-five. Or yeah, it was it was it was a bit of a shock. You know, you, you go there and you think that the the person next to you doing exactly the same job would be on the same pay rate as you, but um, it was like we were on individual contracts. So now that the EAs come through, it's you know, it's it streamlined the the, the pay um, a bit better. Obviously, you've in the recent history, had a chance to look see what the union does up front. Um, how has the being part of the union made a difference for you? Yeah, it's it's been pretty good being a part of the union so far. It's it's like being a part of family. You know, we we all after work out a shift, we all get together and, and and have a big chat and and then pull people aside that that we think are um, are struggling a bit and you know offer our support as as a team and also as as individuals if if people don't feel comfortable. You know, speaking up openly, we we offer them the opportunity to 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 have a say and, and to say what they want to, and then you know if if they feel comfortable, support them in in um, in approaching the you know HR or, or management about about these issues. It's interesting. I, I don't think uh, many people realise that union delegates don't get paid, um, and in effect, they become the first point of contact for members and spend a lot of their own time giving people some support. It might be a yak, a coffee, a beer, or it might be more serious than that. It might be sitting with someone in a meeting um, when there's disciplinary action or there might be explaining, you know, how the, the EA works and explaining a bit about the industrial side of the workplace. Yeah, definitely. I, and being a delegate myself on, on my crew, um, I've I've had to do this a few times, you know, having people approach me, asking questions about, uh, about the EA, uh, about what what the union is um, doing about current issues, or even bringing up current you know, issues that that people feel 
uh, need to be need to be brought up and need to be need to have attention. All right, look, let's quickly talk. I want to talk about the voice. You might quickly tell us. Obviously, we're talking <coughs> to you because you're an Aboriginal man, and you might just quickly tell us about your Aboriginal her- Aboriginal heritage because you've got you're a traditional owner up here in Queensland, but you've also got um, heritage in New South Wales. So, can you quickly introduce us to you as an Aboriginal man? Yeah, that's right. I um, I'm a traditional owner. I'm a Gimoy Wallabari Yadinji man, traditionally from uh, from the Cairns region, uh, where TOs of, of Cairns, uh, but also on the other uh, grandparent side, we're from uh, Wellington outside uh, Dubbo. So that's the Wiradjuri side of us. And even though we're up in Cairns and you grew up here, you actually live in Townsville now. Can you tell us a bit about this area we're in? This area is beautiful. Uh, by the days, you can hear the cars going up and down the Yarrabah Range, and by night, you can fall asleep to the the creek next to us or, or to the ocean. Um, it's, it's a pretty pretty special place for, for me and my family because this is where you know we've I've grown up. Um, you know I was born and raised in this in this particular spot we're in now. Let's talk about um, your work career because you've had it as I've already mentioned that you used to work on jet engines. <laughs> um, let's quickly talk about because um, you started off doing uh, you know when you're 18 or so just doing the uh, the, the local job. I think you're even um, picking bananas and so on at one stage. Yeah, yeah, I worked on a banana farm. I was a cut and humper for about oh, two years uh, up in Mariba. Um, then sort of moved on to, uh, I was a, worked at Pamagiri, Rainforest Station. So I was, a, I was an Aboriginal dancer there for a while. Uh, then I went to the brick factory in Mariba. And you're boxing and, and you're doing your Rodeo stuff at this time. Yeah, man. Yeah, that was, um, that was I was in the best shape of my life. And I didn't have to go to the gym because I was shoveling sand and uh, and concrete every day, all day, every day, Monday to Friday, uh, and then training, doing boxing, uh, you know, three nights a week, and playing football, and then on weekends, uh, going to rodeos, jumping on bulls, and doing all that kind of crazy stuff. All right. So look, you head south, and why did you do that? And tell us what you did when you got down there, because this is where it kind of gets interesting. Because you pick a career which is a pretty niche kind of industry, jet engines. I did an institutional cert four, which is pretty much completing all your TAFE studies in twelve months uh, in a classroom, and then going out and finding someone that'll put you on through your through your training. So yeah, I decided I was going to move down to Newcastle for Jetstar. When I got down there, I, I literally packed my car up, drove down, uh, and presented myself to to Jetstar, but they weren't putting on people at that time and suggested I go to BAE Systems. So I applied for BAE Systems uh, and started about two months later. Well, you're listening to the Mining and Energy Union podcast. We don't often get to leave the studio. We have today. We're talking to Colin Gray. Um, we're going to talk about the voice. Uh, he's an Aboriginal man and he's got some views and um, he reckons that Mining and Energy Union members should vote yes. Um, we're going to get to that in a second, but we're just running through his career because he's had a uh, really interesting 20 years, worked all over the place um, working on jet engines at the moment. We're following his story. He's in Newcastle. You get to the end of this qualification, you can you can fix jet engines, but then you take a turn here basically because of the money. Yeah, well, that's right. I, I doubled my salary overnight. I finished my apprenticeship uh, and looked for a new challenge and found myself working for, for Caterpillar uh, in New South Wales, which started my mining career. And this is in Singleton. Tell, tell us a bit. This is West Track? Yeah, worked with West Track out at Singleton. Uh, it was a pretty long drive <laughs> from from Newcastle out to Singleton at the time. It uh, take me 
anywhere from an hour to, to two and a half hours, depending on traffic. But it was it, it was it was fairly interesting going from aviation to to the mining stuff. You know, working on components, uh, working on final drives, transmissions, engines, doing diagnostics and, and testing and calibrating on uh, on those components, and then you know sending them, getting them back together, and sending them off to site. So you've had a pretty spectacular career thus far, but you decide you're going to go nuclear. Um, you decide you're going to start going to um, South Australia and FIFOing to Olympic Dam. Can you tell us a bit about this mine? Because it's a, it's a unique, it's a unique mine. <clears throat> yeah, it was cold. My first ever shift at Olympic Dam was minus four degrees. Now coming from Newcastle, I thought that was cold. But going down there on a winter's night, minus four degrees, I had four four layers of clothing on, and I still felt it. It's a cold, desolate boring place. It's located right next to um, Roxby Downs, the, the town out there. It was good. It was definitely an eye-opener. It was my first on-site job. I got a lot of experience. Um, I had you know, some, some really good tradesmen with some really good knowledge that they were more than willing to share. And I, I learned a lot. That was, that was such a, as, as isolated as the place was, it was such a great work environment. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it there. You then move back to Cairns because your brother dies. This is about 2012. Um, and this is where you sort of get into coal mining in a real sense. You throw yourself into it. Tell us a bit about the next couple of years here, working and where you worked. Yeah, 2012 I moved up uh, and I started at Peak Downs and that was right around the time when, when they were having a lot of um, industrial strikes and industrial action. Uh, it was fairly confronting me being young and never having to have dealt with picket lines before, uh, it was it was rough for for myself because you know just being exposed to it. But the guys that were you know standing their ground you know with the union and that like all the BMA workers, they were very supportive. You know that because I was a contractor and they they said you know we got to do what we got to do to to get our to get better um, conditions and and terms for ourselves. But we understand you are co- you as contractors still. Need to you know need to earn earn a wage as well. So you know as long as we showed our support for them, they'd, they'd show their support for us. This does sound like a challenging period, but it's also a wonderful period because you get married, you have a couple of kids, and I've met them. They're lovely kids. We've got Nathaniel and Amelia and CJ, and they're running around here, and we've just watched them getting painted up in the ochre and doing some ceremonial dancing, and it's been you know fantastic. Tell us about this period because you stick with the mining. And you're with Thies, and this is when you start to get involved with the reconciliation action plan. Uh, you might tell us what all that's about. Yeah, I was the rap committee uh, rap committee member for for Thies, the Queensland delegate for, uh, for for the committee, and it was my involvement was was more uh, consultation in getting some more awareness out there about uh, about Indigenous history, um, you know regards to like Marbo celebrations, um, why we celebrate, you know, Survival Day and around those kind of dates. So it, it was it was interesting, you know, I had, you know, my father, my mother having their background in, in activism for Aboriginal rights, uh, you know, starting from the 70s through the 80s. Um, it was a, a good chance for me and a good opportunity to, to learn some more history and not, not just my Aboriginal history, but some political history 
you know, from a lot of the issues uh, and stuff that they fought. And it's in this period you're also working with the Klontar Foundation, which is all about, it's all about mentoring other Aboriginal people because, let's face it, you've done pretty well and what, trying to pass on the life lessons there? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, uh, um, that was an interesting part as well. You know, I, I've got this thing about paying it forward, not, not paying back. So, you know, trying to, trying to give to the younger people, um, you know, share my knowledge and experience and, and give some of my wisdom, not just about what I do in work, but, you know, try to give them life experience, try to teach, show them ways and, you know, other, there's other ways to, to live other than just sitting in front of a TV or, um, or just playing football or, you know, just sport. There's, you know, life, there's, there's work, you know, so much they can learn about other different careers other than, you know, building or, or, or um, working on the council. Yes, that Clontarf Foundation, fantastic mentoring um, Aboriginal school children and getting them in front of people like yourself who've got, you know, so much wisdom to sort of give. Uh, let's talk now about The Voice because I know you're at Carmichael um, and you're getting asked all the time on the job about The Voice and whether you support it and whether... Um, people should vote for it. Can you talk to us a bit about the voice and and how you feel about it? Yeah, well, I, I'm I'm in full support of the voice. For me, it's a continuation on where my parents left off in the you know in that late '80s, sort of early '90s, uh, with with what was going on within Queensland um, for for Aboriginal people. So for me, it's just you know picking up that torch from from them and and carrying on carrying on that fight to try and get equal rights, better schooling, better education. Uh, better health, better housing within within our communities for for our communities. I know that if the voice does go through, um, there'll be finally proper recognition of Aboriginal people in the constitution. So, talk to us about what you see the voice doing because I think it's just the sort of most difficult bit, isn't it? Where it's like, but what's it actually going to do? Um, and I know <clears throat> you've talked to me before about you know you got all these bureaucrats in Canberra designing policy. But all the different Aboriginal communities have very separate needs all over the country. Yeah, that's right. What's good for my community isn't isn't necessarily going to be what's good for the next community over. But uh, but you know the voice being a, a, a consultation body to the government, uh, you know, by the people, uh, by uh, by a group of people. You know, I don't, I'm not sure if it's going to be elected or what what the finer finer details are. But but it's going to be ground level people being in consultation with the government to know you know so they know so they can get a, a better idea of what what we need not and not what they think we need what we actually need as you know as as, as a community you know because we're going to do something right we, we aboriginal people are um i think the most incarcerated people in the world they're way overrepresented overrepresented in our jails health education outcomes all way below you kind of white Australians. No, well, that's right. For for a for a people that only represent three percent of Australia, you know, the the statistic for incarceration is is over thirty percent for for the Australian population. Now, that that is a that is a, a a huge problem, you know. And where how how do we fix it? You know, it's obviously what's happened in the past hasn't worked. So we need something there now that that does work. And for me, the voice. Is something you know is is another thing that we need to try to make it work. We, what what's happened in the past is failing. Anyone can see that from from any standpoint. 
but getting the recognition in the constitution uh, for Aboriginal people and then getting the voice to parliament from the people, getting that voice and that consultation from the people is going to go you know, in the right direction to, to, to start fixing some of these problems. So just while we're talking about the voice, I think, you know, we sort of have to be clear about why Aboriginal people, some especially, are having a pretty rough trot because what happened in the last 240 years was pretty rough. Can you sort of give us a sense of what actually has been happening? Yeah, well, since colonisation, uh, it's it, it has been rough for, for Aboriginal people. There's been, uh, you know, I documented uh, over 400 massacre sites across Australia with with a recorded only the uh, recorded amount of people that have been murdered there's been there's been um, you know in excess of 10,000 people since since settlement the people that did survive were 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 pushed into missions and of course you had the stolen generations where even the people <coughs> living on the missions they took their children away placed them with white families they thought that they could sort of to use the language of the time breed aboriginal people out mm. i just think it's worth remembering this stuff because <laughs> You know, the history is pretty important in terms of like looking at Aboriginal people now, right? Yeah, definitely. You know, the stolen generation was uh, the 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 thing. The theory behind that was that um, Aboriginal mothers were incapable of of looking after the the half caste, as they call them, half caste kids. You know, not not full blood kids. So the state uh, assumed states assumed control and um, and implemented the you know removal of of um, fair-skinned kids from from Aboriginal families, and essentially put them in uh, put them in white homes or in missions to um, to essentially you know breed out, like you're saying, breed out the the Aboriginal in them. And and that was that was also a mindset of uh, of politicians back in the day. You know, we'll we'll just breed it out. We'll breed it out of them. Breed the Aboriginality out of them. So uh, you know, and <clears throat> if you didn't conform, if you didn't want to be a part of that, then uh, then you're either killed or or you know left uh, put, pushed aside. Yeah, and of course, movies like Rabbit Proof Fence show the reality of what was happening in the sort of 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, so it's really only the last sort of 70 years or so, or 50 years or so, where we've had a sort of slightly different um, attitude to Aboriginal people. But that doesn't mean they're still not suffering from the baggage left over from um, from that from that area. Just with the voice, uh, just with the missions, um, of course, your dad was very prominent locally where we're here now, just near Cairns, in taking the mission away from the church and and getting it to the local government. So legally it was owned by the local government. Why was that important? Why did that help get some more autonomy for local Aboriginal people here? Yeah, well, the, the states took over from uh, from the Anglican church and then it, it was, a, it was still a long process to to getting um, what they what they call deed of grants, uh, which was handing back the, the the land and and the care of the land to the Aboriginal communities, uh, to the Aboriginal councils. And in Yarrabah, my father spearheaded that um, that that actual movement. Uh, and deed of grants was handed back to uh, the Yarrabah Council on the thirty first of October, nineteen eighty six. I'm I'm first generation. Uh, out of the community that I'd legally don't have to carry around my exemption papers. You know, we've still got my father's exemption papers that when he turned 18, he was legally allowed to leave to leave the mission. Um, and <clears throat> it's 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 been oh, what? 
I mean, that's pretty full on. I mean, I don't think people realise that, that in living memory, like people who are still alive today had to have special papers so they could actually leave these, uh, you know, areas that were designated for Aboriginal people. I mean, it's incredible. And I think I think even at the start of his working life, he had some incredible stories around his wages being garnished, his wages being divvied up by someone else. And can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, my father was a part or came under the Aboriginal Protection Act of 1901. So that that meant the, the states assumed care uh, and, and welfare of, of Aboriginal people. Under the Protection Act, his wages were managed by the state. So he didn't actually receive a paycheck in his hand. He received whatever the state, uh, you know, thought was was an acceptable living amount. So under that, he received probably around thirty percent of his of his wages. That was up until sort of the early early seventies that that was going on. Yeah, I think it's really important to keep telling this history because I think unless it's your parents, unless you have lived it and your family's lived it, you forget this. And, and, and you also forget that perhaps this is um, one of the reasons that Aboriginal people are so far behind because they started with such a handicap because a lot of them grew up in these, you know, communities are well away from all the, you know, Rolls-Royce health and education and so on institutions that white people were living under. Like I was talking to my dad about it the other day about, you know, I've got this film crew coming up, doing some stuff on The Voice. You know, we're going to be doing a lot of filming, a lot of uh, some some interviews as well. And and he said, you know, it was because of his background um, in, you know, growing up in the mission, you know, under the Protection Act, uh, becoming chairman of, of ACC, becoming chairman of, of, of the council and, and spearheading, you know, a lot of the, so to speak, union movements for Aboriginal people over over the course of, you know, 40, 50 years. Um, he, he said, this is a good thing. You know, get, don't, don't be afraid to, to speak. Get out there and, 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 and talk, talk your knowledge, share your, share your knowledge, share your experience. You know, it doesn't matter what, what negative things people have to say. He, he, said, he said, because you know where you come from, you know your history, you know where we've come from, you know how hard it's been for not just our family, not just our community, but, but everyone across Australia, all Aboriginal people. Uh, being, being, growing up in a mission meant that you were under the control of, of the state, you know, up until the mission was, was abolished and, you know, and land was uh, under deed of grants when the land was handed back to Aboriginal people. You know, that was 1986. You think people were able to travel overseas on, on airplanes, go to, go to concerts, go spend their money freely, you know, go and, go and earn extra money, have a second job. And we weren't. My aunties, my uncles, my, my parents, my father wasn't able to. You know, it, it's taken a lot of time and a lot of, a lot of fighting, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering to, to get to where we are now. And I just hope that people see that and you know, people try to understand when they're having conversations around the voice Instead of trying to, uh, what's the word? Challenge. To me, that's that's. I think that's the message. Don't don't try and challenge people on their knowledge. If someone's giving you a, a piece of their knowledge, a piece of their history, under, try and understand. Because at the end of the day, that's if if you if you're not trying to understand, if you're not trying to see 
where someone's come from or where their family or history has come from, you're not going to see where they're trying to go. You're not going to see what they're trying to achieve. The Mining and Energy Union has a huge membership through Queensland, where we're sitting now up on the water in Cairns. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful view. I'm sitting right on the water looking out over uh, over the bay to Cairns itself with you on your, you know, on, on this country, your traditional country. Um, we've got members all the way down through New South Wales, the Hunter Valley, you know, Narrabri, Bogabri, all that area, the Illawarra. Uh, we've got members in, you know, around Lisco in that area. We've got members in Latrobe Valley in Victoria. We've got members in Tassie. We've got members all around Collie in in Western Australia, down in uh, near Bunbury in, in uh, near Perth. We've got members up in the Pilbara. We've got people all over the place um, who listen to our podcast. What do you say to them? How should they vote and, and why should they vote the way that you reckon they should go? I'd implore them to vote yes, not just because it's the right thing to do, but it's our chance as, as a nation to make a difference, to, to start putting the right foot forward for Aboriginal people. You know, the recognition, it's never been there. If, if this goes forward, at least there can be recognition and a, you know, a, a, step, a step forward in the process for, to, you know, to closing the gap between Aboriginal and, and non-Aboriginal people. Well, Colin, it's been fantastic to meet you, to have a chance to meet your kids and hear more about your work and your views on The Voice. I do hope I get to go on assignments like this in the future with the Mining and Energy Union podcast because it's pretty cool sitting up here. Um, palm trees everywhere, birds and, 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 the, and, the, and the beautiful ocean in front of us. Although I'm a bit worried about this sign. It's only about two metres from me that says, watch out for the crocs. I'm glad no crocs have jumped on us while we've been talking. Colin, I really appreciate you welcoming um, us into your home, letting us see some of your Aboriginal ceremonial um, stuff and dancing and so on, and, and I really appreciate you having a, having a yak to us on the podcast. No worries, I appreciate uh, you guys coming up too. It's you know good to, to to get my voice out there, um, and show my support for for the voice and the union. You've been listening to the Mining and Energy Union podcast bringing you news, investigations, history and interviews to empower mining and energy workers. Subscribe for monthly episodes via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.